Today we're starting the third class. Uh, this is a two-part topic, um, an introduction to values-based halacha. Um, and I should start by saying that the term values-based halacha is more or less meaningless. Um, I don't think there is an accepted term at this point for the kind of legal interpretation um, that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I've heard it called values-based halacha. I've heard it called common sense halacha. Um, so if you have a name during this week or next week that comes to you that helps you understand and is kind of catchy, then you should, you should tell everybody that name because your name might be like the face of what this is called in textbook for years to come. <laughs> so like, you have an opportunity here. Think about it that way. Um, I should also say that um, I think in these two classes, more than other classes, I'm very much indebted to my teacher, Revelisha, um, in terms of guiding me, in terms of reading things he's written, um, in terms of kind of his, the, the time I've spent with him um, in approaching this material has been very helpful. Um, so um, if I'm, a lot of what I'm saying um, is indebted to him. Um, I want to start, I'd say, with an example. Um, there is a book that was written in the late 19th century called Flatland, which some of you may have heard of. Uh, has anybody heard of this book? Is this me? Okay, a few people. Flatland was written by this guy, Edwin Abbott Abbott. That's what the A stands for, don't ask me why. Um, he describes a society um, in two dimensions. Everybody in the world is two-dimensional. There's squares and there's triangles and everything in the society is built around two dimensions. He spends a lot of time in the book describing the society of this world. Um, and then he describes in the second half of the book this visitation of a sphere into the three-dimensional world and the experience of this one, um, I forget, I think it was a square, um, who experiences this sphere intersecting with this world. And he describes the experience of having this sphere kind of uh, come in contact with the world. Um, and you, if you see this diagram, you can get a sense of what this looks like. Um, so he says um, in the second paragraph, there was no rising that I could see, right? He can't see this, this sphere rising in and out of this two-dimensional plane. But he diminished and finally vanished. I winked once or twice to make sure that I was not dreaming, but it was no dream. For be, from, from the depths of nowhere came forth a hollow voice, close to my heart it seemed. Am I quite gone? Are you convinced now? Well, now I will gradually return to Flatland and you shall see my section become larger and larger. It's like a very mystical experience. This probably was describing a mystical experience. Every reader in Spaceland, i.e. three-dimensional world, will easily understand that my mysterious guest was speaking the language of truth and even of simplicity. But to me, proficient though I was in flatland mathematics, it was by no means a simple matter. The rough diagram given above will make it clearer to any Spaceland child that the sphere ascending in the three positions indicated there must needs have manifested himself to me or to any flatlander as a circle, at first a full size, then small, and at last very small indeed, approaching to a point. But to me, although I saw facts before me, the causes were as dark as ever. All that I could comprehend was that the circle had made himself smaller and vanished, and that he had now reappeared and was rapidly making himself larger. I like this image. I think it's helpful in thinking about the kind of approach to halakha that we're uh, moving towards, which is understanding the halakha as it exists um, in all written materials, as it exists in Shulchan Aruch, as it exists in Responsa, as being a kind of intersection of a halakha that is actually one dimension larger. In that, what halakha actually is, um, involves 
values. It involves grappling with all the various tensions that go into life. But in any particular time, in any particular plane of existence, put it that way, um, those values kind of uh, are projected in a particular form. What it means to, um, to be good to your fellow human beings, for example, in a particular time period might mean one thing and something else in another time period. Um, and our task, which I think is a difficult task, um, in trying to grapple with halacha and also understand uh, ways in which it is kind of projects today, um, is to kind of see halacha as being one dimension larger than it is, one dimension larger than we see, uh, meaning to kind of step out of our own time period um, and look at halacha as it ex has existed in the past um, and as we imagine it might exist in the future as well. Um, and that that kind of halacha is a much fuller picture and kind of explains these um, what, what appear to be these random fluctuations in halacha as it exists. So those fluctuations are really the result of like halacha being this entity which is much larger, which is like uh, extra dimensional, if you can put it that way. I don't know if that image is helpful to you. Um, it's been helpful to me in, in understanding this. Um, there are very few visual images, I think, that work well in this context. So I wanted to give you at least one. Um, what I hope that we accomplish by the end of these two classes is get a sense of what it means to read halakha with these lenses. Some of us, I think, come to this class having not really looked at much halakhic material. Some of us may have looked at quite a bit of it um, and have been taught or implicitly been taught how to read it. Um, I think one of the things that we need to recognize, um, as we talked about last class, is that we're always making choices when we, do, when we act. We're also making choices when we read. Um, and to kind of get an awareness of that reading. I think it's a little bit more difficult to do in the case of reading uh, than it is in the case of decision making because there's, there's so much implicit in the way we read. Um, but there is um, it, there's a helpful concept from, uh, from Derrida that texts um, are only text, meaning there's no uh, acceptable context for a text. Text kind of exists and you have to um, kind of construct things around them. Um, and so as a result, we're kind of stuck in that halakha, halakhic text can't tell you this is how I'm supposed to be read. In fact, no text can tell you this is how I'm supposed to be read because that text itself would have to be read as well. Um, so you end up with this problem where at some point uh, texts break down and you need to think outside of the text in terms of how, how to read it. Okay. By the way, as well, like from last class, interrupt me whenever when I'm saying it doesn't make sense. Um, fine. The other thing that I should say um, is that reading this way is a little, I think, I expect to encounter resistance at first. Um, once you start reading this way, I think it's difficult to stop. Um, the reason it's difficult to start is because it feels unfamiliar and it often feels irreverent. I think when you talk about um, reading behind rabbis and trying to imagine why they might have said something even though they didn't tell you that that's why they said it, um, it feels as though you are undermining them. And I think learning to read text in this way without getting that sense that you are undermining or kind of like, you know, looking behind, looking behind the, um, what's the metaphor from Wizard of Oz? Curtain, looking glass. Looking behind the curtain, looking glass. Um, <laughs> that you are kind of, you're unmasking somebody and you're diminishing the rabbi as a result. And what I want to emphasize is that our project is both to read behind, but also not to diminish. Um, in that one of the kind of, um, norms, one of the commitments I think we have to go into with these texts is what Rabbi Cardozo talked about last week, that we have a commitment to Yurat Shemaim, to the fear of heaven, that when we read texts, we ha also have to have this uh, reverence for the rabbis themselves, that the rabbis are grappling with serious issues in serious ways, 
and they're not just you know masquerading as you know trying to um, uh, mask some kind of naked political ambition or naked like um, other kind of um, um, personal motive in halakhic language that there is something real behind what they're asking me. So I think that has to be uh, uh, an assumption that we go into this with. Um, I'd also suggest that uh, one of the reasons the halakha is so difficult, that this approach is kind of so difficult to talk about in theory, and I had like a lot of trouble trying to come up for today's class in like thinking about this uh, broadly. It's much easier to talk about it in examples. Um, is because halakha is correlated with life. And life itself, I think, is perhaps the most complex thing that there is. Um, there is a, um, a description of software programming. For those of you who do any kind of programming, this maybe resonates with you in source number two on page two. Um, so this, apparently it's a famous essay um, about why it is so hard to program for computers. Um, and what he says um, in the last paragraph here is that the complexity of software is an, essential, is an essential property, not an accidental one. Hence, descriptions of software entity that abstract away its complexity often abstract away its essence. For three centuries, mathematics and the physical sciences made great strides by constructing simplified models of complex phenomena, deriving properties from the models, and verifying those properties by experiment. The paradigm worked because the complexities ignored in the models were not the essential properties of the, of the phenomenon. It does not work when the complexities are the essence. So if I want to describe a system in theory, then I can kind of abstract away. But uh, software, meaning, um, something that is built to work in the real world under all of the various complexities that go into the real world is going to be essentially complex. And I would say halakha, um, a legal system, as well, is going to be essentially complex. And therefore, it is going to be difficult to say anything grand about the way halakha works. One is always going to be simplifying. Um, it's much more beneficial to work through sources. Um, this is all by way of introduction. Um, I would also just suggest two things that I think are helpful in thinking about halakha this way, given that um, experience, heuristics, is the best way to do this. One is reading Mishnah. I find reading Mishnah is helpful in trying to un read Mishnah um, and to see Mishnah as being uh, rabbis trying to work out tensions uh, about the reality and trying to see arguments between rabbis and the Mishnah as being trying to work out those tensions. Uh, so if you are looking for a learning project, I think Mishnah um, it's been helpful to me. I think it might be helpful to you as well in terms because of like... As opposed to Gemara? Or sorry? As opposed to Gemara? As opposed to Gemara. Uh, meaning I, there's much more going on in Gemara. There's like several, several different projects going on in Gemara. Mishnah, and we can talk about what exactly the Mishnah is because that's not clear and when exactly the Mishnah was written over how long a period of time. But it's a relatively straightforward text. It's relatively structured. Um, and laws are described pretty succinctly. Um, and so one can kind of get to the... the these tensions more quickly than one would in Gemara. You could do it. You could do it in Gemara too. Uh, the other thing is that I think a lot of the shirim that and this is like a shameless plug for Hadar. Um, a lot of the shirim that come out of Hadar, um, uh, which you can find on the podcast, um, I think exemplify this very well. I don't know so many shirim outside of that um, which do a good job of this. I think the ones that are Hadar, um, there's a, a uh, series of shirim about keeping kosher. There's one about Nida. And I think those are helpful in thinking about sources this way. And shirim are? Shirim classes, um, roughly. Torah classes. This is a Thank you for um, making me not speak jargon. Um, OK. So as for today, the project today is 
in some ways moving towards Jewish sources, we're going to be looking at a lot of sources which are not Jewish. We're going to be looking at a lot of sources which are about uh, the philosophy of law. And the reason I think this is important is because they provide helpful language in terms of, in, in, to help us think about what it is that halakha is, what it is that rabbis are doing when they're deciding law, um, whether there is a right answer to halakhic questions, um, whether there is a necessary relationship between halakha and morality, um, between halakha and politics. These are all questions which are discussed in philosophy of law, especially in the past century. Um, and so the language is helpful. And I want to emphasize, it's the language that's helpful, not necessarily the answers. Um, I like to think about uh, trying to like have this meeting of halakha and philosophy of law is like, imagine halakha is like a married couple, which are like not doing so well as a couple, and they're like bickering all the time, and they decide to go to a marriage counselor, and the marriage counselor decides, it turns out to be another bickering couple. So meaning like, there's a whole very intense discussion within the world of philosophy of law about exactly how law works, just in the secular world. And trying to combine that heavy conversation with the heavy conversation about what halakha is into one massive conversation is not necessarily the most productive. Um, in terms of trying to achieve some kind of ultimate answer. Um, the language, though, is very helpful. Um, so we're, we're reading for language here. Um, so what I want to do is let's talk about some terminology. Um, I think the lawyers in the room might be familiar with some or all of this, so I apologize in advance. Uh, I think the rest of us, um, philosophy of law, like of all the kinds of philosophy, is actually one of the least taught. Um, it's pretty inaccessible even today. Um, so I hope this is helpful. Um, one is the distinction between common law and civil law. Does anybody know, actually? What's the, what's the difference between common law and civil law? <laughs> 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 no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Go, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Um, I mean, speak, from your, so, speak from your expertise. <laughs> so civil law is law that is, is written like a... a um, <coughs> And uh, common law is law that is sort of developed by a court over time. So civil law, it might be uh, you, get a, a, you get this fine uh, for, for speeding, and that's written down somewhere in a statute, whereas a common law, you know, a lot of like torts is, is common law. It's like developed through, through interpretations by court of, courts over time without there being a single sort of written source that's being interpreted. Um, in America, most of America runs according to a, a kind of common law system, although it has a constitution as well um, as a kind of fundamental text. Um, if you want to think of like a good example of what is a common law system, England. England is like the paradigm. So America is civil law? American mostly runs according to a common law system, all the states except for Louisiana. Louisiana and Quebec, um, because of the French influence, um, run according to civil legal systems. You know, meaning like if you live in those states, the law is going to, the, the structure of the laws looks significantly different. Um, it means Practically, what it means is that um, for a lot of changes to take place, you need the um, the parliament or the congress of that state or province um, to meet and change the law, as opposed to having judges change it through um, through precedents and through um, through readings of older laws. Um, so that's a kind of like a very basic distinction in terms of the kind of legal systems that exist in the world today. Um, what would you say Judaism is? In terms of that, do you think Judaism functions more as a common legal system or as a civil legal system? Historically, it's more of a common law system. 
but there have been various attempts to make it into a simple law system. So what, what makes you think about it as being a common law system? Well, I mean, the, sort of the, the arguments about the meanings of texts and reinterpreted decisions of those texts um, and, and principles is sort of the basic feature of, of common law. Um, yeah, but you know, I guess I mean, you know, I mean, like the Shulchan Aruch is more of a uh, like that's more of an attempt to be more like a civil law type system. Right. So if I and and this might go down to the way that I approach the law, um, partially with a lack of consistent enforcement in halacha, a lot of this comes down to my it can come down to our personal interactions with halacha. But if I approach a halacha question and I say, can I do this or can I not do this? Well, let me look in the Shulchan Aruch. What does that say? That's a kind of civil legal attitude. Um, or if I say, well, I wonder if there's another rabbi who said something which is more lenient or more strict than the Shulchan Aruch. That's a civil legal attitude. Um, a common law attitude might, you might find um, in the actual adjudication of rabbis, um, meaning in rabbis choosing over a period of time to reinterpret, uh, to, to look to older precedent, um, to adjudicate based on that precedent, and to kind of be bound by that in some ways. Um, one way you might think about this is the notion that there is iridat hadorot, there is a kind of descent of generations, um, that um, younger generations, us guys, are not as qualified to decide legal issues, meaning every successive generation is going to have a progressively smaller scope of interpretation. Um, and as a result, we are very much bound to the interpretations of our ancestors. Um, that would be, I think, more of a common legal attitude. Um, but I think what you can see is that Judaism kind of doesn't fit nicely into either category. Um, so those terms are, I, I think the terms common law and civil law are not so much up for grabs. What is more up for grabs is the question of what law is itself. Um, in the past century, there are kind of two basic attitudes towards thinking about what law is. Um, one is called legal positivism. One is called natural law. Just out of curiosity, are these terms familiar? Who is like, okay, great. Um, that means this year is worthwhile. Um, this class is worthwhile. Legal positivism, uh, which we'll talk about first, um, developed um, with that name in 20th century England. Um, the, there are also proponents of it, or people you could say who are proponents of it within Judaism. Um, what defines legal positivism is this notion that law is valid as a result of the form in which law is decided, meaning what makes a valid law? A law that a judge has made not a law that is moral, a law that is ethical. It is the form of the law and not the content of it that is ethical. And when I try to deliberate about, well, is this a law a good law, is this law a bad law, what I have to work with are other laws and not principles of, you know, principles of like human well-being. Um, this imagines law as being a kind of social construct, law as it exists in society. Um, depending on which legal philosopher you talk to, Law can be more or less directly connected to morality. I think like there aren't legal there aren't legal philosophers or legal positivists who would suggest that law and morality are entirely divorced from one another. Um, but that relationship is doesn't change the fact that law, the legal system as it exists, is not essentially moral. It's not essentially ethical. It's something else. Um, one of the reasons this is important is in thinking about what makes, what, what do I consider you know, laws at all? Um, and so one of the questions that the legal positivist grappled with early on is, why is it that if a 
guy with a gun comes up to me in a dark alleyway and says, give me all your money, that's not law. That's not part of a legal system. I might do it, but it's not law. Whereas if the government tells me that I have to pay X percentage of my income tax to every, every single year, then that is law. Or to put it another way, why is it coercion when the robber tells me to give me all his money, but the IRS it is not coercion when the IRS tells me to do that? Um, so this is a question which came up very early. early. Um, in answering the question, legal positivists kind of talked about um, law as being founded in society, as, as being a part of the basic fabric of society, uh, and that there being this kind of implicit understanding within a given society that X institutions get to make law, that X counts as a law. Um, one of the most important legal philosophers, whose name is H.L.A. Hart, H-A-R-T, um, suggested that there is this thing called the rule of recognition, um, by which a society kind of implicitly understands certain things to be law and certain things not to be law. So a rule of recognition might suggest that, you know, when I, when I have like, when John Roberts um, hands down these pages, that counts as law. When John Roberts lives in Delaware, who's a different John Roberts, does the same thing, I don't know why I think that, um, then it's not law, that it has this basic form. Um, if in the field of Judaism, uh, an approach like this uh, is suggested by uh, Yeshayahu Leibowitz. Uh, so if you look on page number three, um, you have Yeshayahu Leibowitz, um, 20th century rabbi. Um, actually, I'm not sure if he was a rabbi. I think he was a chemist by profession. Um, I think he actually wasn't allowed to teach courses about him because he was in the wrong department. Um, meaning like he was a, like a central halachic uh, thinker, but he wasn't technically like a philosopher. Um, so he is known for having this attitude towards halacha, which suggests that what is the essence of Judaism? It's halacha. And what is halacha? It's halacha. It is, it is its own thing. That is what is Judaism. That, was, that is what was given to us by God. And you can't kind of deviate from that. Um, it is its own important entity. And so he describes this in source number three. Judaism, um, sorry, at the end of the first line, morality can be neither Jewish nor non-Jewish, neither religious nor irreligious. Morality is morality. The attempt to fuse morality and religion is not a happy one. Morality is guidance of man's will in accordance with his knowledge of nature and of himself, or in accordance with that the individual with what the individual considers his duty towards man as an end in himself, differs radically from religious consciousness or religious feeling. From the standpoint of Judaism, man as such has no intrinsic value. He is an image of God, and only as such does he possess special significance. That is why Judaism did not produce any ethical theory of its own, was never embodied in any moral system, etc., etc. Um, what do you think of this approach to halacha? The halacha is halacha, morality is morality, but never the twain shall meet. You like it? Does, does it suggest any problems to you? Do you, like, do you see a way in which thinking about halacha and morality as being divorced could result in a problem? What happens when the two separate things that are divorced are not just existing in parallel universes but conflict with each other? Right. Um, and this is something that Ishao Leibowitz um, grappled with as well in trying to understand, well, what happens if halakha demands one thing of me and morality demands something entirely different? Um, and he does, uh, he does account for some kind of halakha change 
But actually, in, in reading up about him, it, it seems like he was somewhat conflicted about this, uh, in that his thought is a little bit uh, ambiguous about, well, exactly how does halakha change? I mean, like, halakha stands on its own. Halakha is the, if the ultimate purpose of being Jewish is to do halakha, is to do halakhic things, then how is it that you know, one might, then halakha might change, or that one might change halakha um, because uh, something that he actually spoke about directly is, uh, is about the equality of women. Um, and he was specifically concerned about the fact that many halakhic sources do not treat women and men as equal. Um, yeah. I, I think there's a certain appeal to this approach, honestly. I'm trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, I think, for me, part of it is that, you know, if you're approaching halakha kind of from the outside, like maybe as a balchuba or as a convert, or just as someone who's, you know, being critical about it, I think you get a certain sort of power by saying that I can, you know, disregard halakha or engage critically with halakha without giving up my morality. That I'm a moral person, that comes from somewhere outside of this system, and therefore I, as a moral person, can make decisions about this system without feeling like my own morality is on trial. Mm. And it's just a, you know, it's separate, you know, to, if you want to trivialize it, you could say it makes halakha just a game and not the, the real stuff. I mean, I, I wouldn't trivialize it that much, but it gives you that kind of flexibility. Whereas if halakha is morality, then like you're a bad person if you don't follow. Right. Um, so what I think you're, you're kind of leading us towards, and we'll talk about this when we talk about natural law, is the, the sense that there is a consequence to imagining halakha and morality as even being theoretically identical, in, in some ways being identical. What does that mean about morality if halakha seems to conflict with it? Or what does that mean about halakha if morality conflicts with it? Were you going to say something? Um, I'm still trying to figure out. Also, what about some, sorry. I don't know if you want to yeah, go but some of the halachas that seem moral, I guess we would just say like we're we're attaching too much meaning to it. It just is what it is. But be kind to the stranger because you were once a stranger seems like it's kind of a moral thing. Like it seems kind of like a do unto others as you would want. Great. So what he would say in those situations, or give you an example of. Um, the Torah saying that you should honor your parents, that you should, uh, if you honor your parents, therefore it will extend your life. Um, that seems like that's a motivation for you to, to honor your parents because it extends your life. You would say, what's the point of extending your life? To do more halakha. Um, meaning, these are all in some ways towards, these are all means. Um, and perhaps they are ways of kind of instructing us to do halakha. Perhaps like if I put the, the particular halakhic Injunction in a certain way that will make me want to do it more, but ultimately it's the bare halacha that is important. What, what did what you said before about women? Like, what what did he do with that? Um, you just sort of noted it and said, you know. Um, I don't exactly know. Um, I don't know enough about Yishai Lebus to, to like to give you a full answer about his his attitude towards the treatment of women. But I think he did advocate for 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 a change in halacha, uh, right? Which is kind of a strange thing. Um, but I like it, I, I, I'm not I'm not at the point where I can say that like that is a clear contradiction in his thought. It might be that he's resolved that. Yeah, I, I guess just another example of this conflict is Shrita, mm -hmm. where the idea of like the ritual slaughter of animals was very possibly designed in the way to cause the least amount of pain and suffering to the animal, and now it tends to be considered the least humane way that's still legal. Great. to kill animals, and I think New Zealand or some other country recently banned it. 
right? So this discussion about like about there being um, different uh, applications of humaneness over different periods of time is, I think, really important. And I think like the question of what is the relationship between law and history is something which yeah, Shaya Leibowitz has difficulty with. By the way, Shaya Leibowitz, brother of Nechama Leibowitz, the famous Bible scholar. Um, yeah, I think it's something that he has trouble with. Let's just move on. Um, so I'm just conscious of the time. Um, the, uh, the, the major alternative approach to this is what's called natural law. And I think you can probably already get a sense from what we've talked about of what, what natural law is. Um, there are a lot of different uh, expressions of natural law over millennia. Um, a lot of religious legal systems um, are kind of attracted towards, towards a natural legal system because it suggests that um, there is something essential about the way that law is structured. Meaning like there's something in the universe that demands that I observe in this particular way and not just because of a social contract but actually something about the world itself. Um, there are different kind of strengths to this, right? Um, if, you, if you think about, um, say, the Nuremberg trials, the Nuremberg trials in a sense are a discussion about, um, our, our, our deal with natural law. Um, in that there is this sense of there, are, there were laws in Germany at some point in time, but because we understand those laws as being invalid because they violate ex basic principles of human nature or basic ex principles of morality, therefore they are invalid. Therefore, it is not a valid argument to say that I was following X law because the natural principle kind of undergirds that and, and kind of subverts that. That would be a strong reading of natural law, meaning to say like, I don't need to keep any law that demands that I do anything that is um, against ethics, what I understand to be against ethics. Um, a softer version might be to suggest that there is a possibility of questioning a law that a judge might say, I don't think this law should be kept and I'm going to overturn this law because of some moral principle, but not that every Joe Schmo on the street can get away with it on their own. Uh, meaning there still has to be some kind of process by which laws are overturned. Um, those are kind of, yeah. I think, I know what I was formulating. So I think that the, the danger which, which, uh, which does happen in real life is then people project their own morality onto their legal systems and then um, view other systems as immoral and judge people based on that. Great. Um, so this definitely has a result that's interesting about, uh, in terms of comparative law, like what one thinks about other legal systems and what other people do as well. Um, right now, we're, we're still talking about what law is in its, itself, as opposed to how one makes legal decisions. Uh, in a minute, we're going to start talking about how judges make decisions. Um, and then talking about that relationship will, I think, um, come to the bear more, come to the fore. Where is the whole, isn't it the whole like hook and mishpat distinction? Like how did you, is that? Like overlay with this at all? I'm trying to think if it's like the same thing, or maybe it's not really the same thing. So like, who you talk like, to? What, so hook is like, or which one is it? Hoke, one of them is like, it's like a law. It's a law because it would be a law anyway if it wasn't if it wasn't halacha or in the Torah. And the other one is that it would, it's a it's a it's a, it's a law just because it's in the Torah. I can't remember which is which. Right. So hook would be a law that is does not have a reason or does not, uh, or okay, just yeah, a slight variant, does not have a known reason. It might have a reason, but it's not known. Um, whereas a mishpat would have some rational, per have rational reason. Um, depending on who you talk to, that might break down as being um, 
you know, the, these laws can be interrogated. I can talk about morality in relation to these, but I can't talk about them in terms of chukim, or not. I think the source in Maimonides, source number four, is actually an approach which suggests that neither category um, is truly um, is truly removed from any kind of moral system. So what he suggests at the bottom of page three is the law as a whole aims at two things, the welfare of the soul and the welfare of the body. All of law, that's what all of law is about. And so because of that, um, this is, sorry, this is in Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed. Um, Maimonides, 12th century scholar, um, lived most of his life in Egypt, wrote this in Egypt. Um, this is one of the key philosophical works um, in any religion of the Middle Ages. Um, and so his understanding, and it's not just him, there are other, writers, other authors of this period as well, is that law um, has a purpose. Um, there is a purpose to keeping social order because social order is a kind of uh, ground, uh, a grounding assumption. I must have social order in order for me then to think um, and to connect with God and to meditate. Uh, if I don't have social order, then many of the kind of higher order activities which I'm supposed to be engaged in cannot be done. Um, and so he, what he would argue, for example, is that the purpose of sacrifice in the Torah is to move Jews away from idolatry. Why sacrifice? Because Jews at that time were engaged in idolatry already. There was lots of sacrifice in the world. But now at least they were sacrificing to one god, to the correct god, as opposed to all these false gods. And so all of law um, has this kind of purpose. Um, and if you look on the next page, um, in the second paragraph, he says, every commandment from among these 613 commandments exists either with a view to communicating a correct opinion, meaning one of the, one of the purposes of law, and I think we might not think about this as being natural law, but he does, is one of the purposes of law is that I think the right things, that I recognize that God is one, that I attempt to appreh apprehend God, um, that that is a purpose of law, um, because that uh, is a kind of perfection of a human being to be at the point where one can comprehend God in some way. So communicating a correct opinion, or putting an end, it says end, end, putting an end to an unhealthy opinion, or to communicating a rule of justice, or warding off an injustice, or endowing men with a noble moral quality, or to warning them against an evil moral quality. Thus all commandments are bound up with three things, opinions, moral qualities, and political civic actions. It's all of law. Um, and he will say, interestingly enough, that this doesn't account for every detail of law, meaning he does, is not such a strong natural legal thinker that he thinks every law goes according to this. And if you look in the last paragraph on this page, he says, among the things that you likewise ought to know is the fact that the law does not pay attention to the isolated. The law has, was not given with a view to things that are rare. It is directed only towards the things that occur in the majority of cases and pays no attention to what happens rarely or, amazingly enough, or to the damage occurring to the unique human being because of this way of determination and because of the legal character of the governance. That is to say, it is possible that these rules which we are given are actually damaging to people. It's possible that to most people it will work correctly, but to some person, you know, it's going to totally turn them off of Judaism. It's going to totally make them an axe murderer. We don't know. Um, this only works for the majority of cases. Okay. Thoughts about this? Reactions to this? Yeah. What exactly, he says it's wrapped up in three things. What exactly are these things? Opinions, moral qualities, and political civic action? Um, it's a good question. So opinions, um, we've already talked about, right? There are certain kind of, there are certain thoughts that I'm supposed to have. There are certain ideas that I'm supposed to have. Moral qualities, I would suggest this is something uh, akin to Aristotle's virtues. 
that human beings should strive to kind of balance you know, their anger, they should have temperance in different things, they should have different kinds of wisdom, um, and that the purpose of some of these laws is to develop those qualities. So for example, honoring your parents is probably good at developing a sense of virtue. Um, and civil actions, I would suggest, is kind of basic ordering of society. Um, that society is not corrupt, that people aren't going around stealing from each other or killing from each other, things, things along those lines. Yeah. Other questions? I like the idea that there is kind of a general norm that applies in most situations and then that there are these areas where it starts to kind of fall apart on the margins and that doesn't necessarily weaken the, the center or whatever. Like I was thinking, um, I used to work at the Children's Hospital and I worked for the Palliative Care Department and we have this norm that, that all life is valuable and that you know children should live, which I think is a very <laughs> meritous um, norm. But then it gets problematic at the margins when children aren't allowed to die who might otherwise die. And then they're subjected to all of these kind of really invasive intense procedures at the end of life and like, you know, it's child might be suffering, family might be suffering. It's this really kind of complicated situation where that more general law or ethical precept doesn't doesn't always work hmm. completely well. I think this is interesting because it suggests that there is um, um, Meaning, I, th I think you're, you're reading it charitably, that um, there are these kind of rare cases that law does not have a responsibility to deal with. Um, you could also read it as those are the hard cases. Like, those right. are the cases where actually it is imperative that I, we, we think very carefully about uh, whether the laws that we have should function in that case. Um, and you might also say, like, your definition of what is rare and my definition of what is rare might actually be quite different. Yeah. Um, and that difference, meaning, like, uh, this is this is a helpful tool in that it allows Rumbum to get out of some of the details of law, which he doesn't think always work. Um, but in practice, it actually might be those marginal cases which are quite important. I mean, um, I can think of a lot of other contrary examples in which. Right. I mean, you could say I mean, just to give you a yeah. clear example, um, heteronormativity, right, yeah. uh, legal uh, halakhic heteronormativity. Um, one could argue, well, homosexuality is a rare case. Or you could argue exactly the opposite. It's actually, um, it's not real, or it's a, it's a hard case. It needs to be dealt with. I think that the, in both situations, you have this distinction between like where the law is intended and kind of special circumstances in which the law not only might not do what it's intended to do, but, but might actually cause additional problems. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think you're being really generous, too, in your reading of Rambam, because I don't think he's saying in these hard cases you have to think about whether or not the law applies. I think he's saying the law applies, like, blanket, and it just is really hard for that individual that it doesn't, that doesn't fall into, mm -hmm. that, that is that isolated case. And he says it, the law pays no attention to what happens rarely or to the damage occurring to that unique human. And I think, I don't know, I think that's the hardest part for me to like understand Rambam. Um, and I think like it, it makes sense that when he lists off what the point of law is, he like doesn't include getting close to God or like feeling close to God <laughs> because I don't, 
I think, I don't know, I just think his view of law is, law is moral, but that moral is like coming entirely outside of ourselves. Um, and that like for, for that person that has such a struggle with the law, like it still applies to him, it still applies to her, but, um, and there's like damage done, but that's not what the point of law is anyway. And it couldn't deal with all the, case, the singular cases. And I guess I kind of understand how that could work maybe with secular law, but I don't think it can work with something that is supposed to be so personal. So um, I think it's a good critique. Um, one way of dealing with this is, is that Rumpum here is trying to describe law as opposed to prescribe law. Um, he's not suggesting in all cases where someone seems to be harmed that, well, them's the breaks. Like, that's just how law works. Um, he is allowing for the fact that um, there are situations where law will cause harm, that that does not threaten um, halacha as an institution. Um, and in that way, there is something a little bit positivistic about, about Rambam, in that he understands that halacha is not entirely uh, coextensive, is not entirely identical with, um, with morality, that there are places where they do not overlap. Um, he, he understands that theoretically. Um, in his responsa, like, he deals with all kinds of cases where you know, there is harm being done. And I mean, I think one of the major tasks of responsa is to deal with the cases where there is damage that happens as a result of law and trying to kind of grapple with that. Sometimes saying, well, that's the law, and sometimes saying, sometimes saying not. Um, I think this also gets into the discussion about law as being a communal institution as being, or as being an individual institution. Um, okay. I also, I mean, I'll be really brief, but like, I think the issue of plurality is also an issue here because I think that when the mainstream is kind of heterosexual men, then a lot of the stuff that comes up with halakha, heterosexual Jewish men, isn't going to come up because in that mainstream context it fits really well. But once you start having interfaith families and women who want to daven and like a more kind of open attitude towards like, you know, non heteronormative voices, then you start to realize all of these different, you know, areas in which the law, you, right. you start bumping up against the law in all of these really kind of ways, and, I, and I'm sure that people bumped up against the law in unpleasant ways in earlier centuries. Great. But so you're suggesting that Rambam kind of exists, you're kind of reading behind Rambam and saying he's not a, you know, a neutral arbiter of halakha, he's living in the 12th century in Egypt with certain <coughs> attitudes in society, certain attitudes towards, towards women, towards homosexuality, um, and in his description of law and in his adjudication as well, um, that plays a role, and I think that's it's totally on. Um, the next source, amazingly enough, um, I think helps us start to think about the relationship between law and history. Um, in the 20th century in America, actually going into the 19th century as well, um, there is a movement towards understanding the relationship between law and politics and admitting, like admitting straight out, that there is a relationship between law and politics. Um, one of the main proponents of this is Oliver Wendell Holmes, who sat on the Supreme Court of the United States for a very long time. Um, and he wrote this famous essay. This is, I think, is one of the you're keeping score, probably one of the key essays in uh, philosophy of law. Um, and this um, sets out an attitude towards law, which is now called legal realism, or, or American legal realism. Um, this, one of the things this does is answer the question of what do judges do? And it suggests that we can't always 
see in the actual opinions of judges what they are doing, we have to read behind them in some ways. There is politics, um, there is economic thought um, as well that goes into judicial thought. There is history that goes into judicial thought. Um, and you need to read that into the texts as well. Um, and so this gives like, there's something skeptical about this approach towards law. Um, it suggests that I can't take all my sources on face value. Um, he does, however, agree that um, law is a, is a social construct. And one of the things that, one of his, one of his key insights is that um, who is law for? Law is not for the person uh, who is moral. Law is for, in his words, the bad man. Um, law is for the person where this person doesn't care what is morally right, what is morally wrong, but does care about what the law thinks. That's who law is for. Um, and so law serves this very clear social purpose in stopping the bad man from doing bad things. And he says this outright in the underlying passage on page five, if you want to know the law and nothing else, you must look at it as a bad man who cares only for the material consequences which such knowledge enables him to predict, not as a good one who finds his reason for conduct, whether inside the law or outside of it, in the vaguer sanctions of consciousness, of conscience. Um, and so this suggests that when I read a judicial opinion, I have to read it with an eye towards, well, how is this judge trying to you know, back the bad man into a corner? Um, and that there being this kind of very clear motive in, in reading law. Um, questions about that? Yeah. Just a comment, but um, I mean, I, th I think that that's a, uh, kind of ignoring the fact that many people's moral structures or their sense of morality is built by an existing legal system. So <coughs> you're saying this, or you, you know, in the voice of, of uh, this text are saying that um, like only the, the person who is not moral on his own needs the law but like maybe that works for like one generation but then what kind of standards do you have to um, like infuse a sense of morality? Great, I think it's a great critique. Um, Robert Gordon who is in this packet later on um, suggests that critique um, as being a critique of um, of, of, of this particular system, um, that the, the, the kind of the line between what is society and what is law, or what is morality and what is law, is not actually so clear. That like law actually enters into our lives in a very real way all the time. Um, so that's great. I think I think you're right about that. Um, one of the uh, outgrowths of, nat of, uh, of legal realism in America in the 1970s and 1980s is um, a school of legal thought called Critical Legal Studies, CLS for short. Um, and this developed kind of in concert with um, civil rights movement um, with a lot of upheaval in America in the, in the cultural and social sphere. Um, and this, in a way, agrees with, uh, ag agrees with um, Oliver Wendell Holmes that there is this political element to law but is much more uh, skeptical about that point and is much more um, pessimistic about that. Meaning, you could be like Oliver Wendell Holmes and say, well, law is about, you know, is about um, restricting the behavior of the bad man. But in CLS, the attitude was, well, law is about the 1%. Law is there to uphold um, the aristocracy. Um, it is there to kind of, it, it, it constricts uh, Americans. It constricts um, societies. It is not entirely positive, and that um, the kind of the, the, the values that go into legal decisions, maybe they're good law, maybe they're good, but also um, kind of there is a, there is a power structure which goes into it. There is a hegemony 
um, in law as well. And so a lot of what critical legal studies did was pointing out that there are these huge inconsistencies in law, something we talked about last time actually, um, with the example of there being you know, 49 ways to say that something is pure and 49 ways to, some, to say that something is impure um, in Jewish law, they would agree as well in all areas of law. There are all kinds of ways to go with the legal sources at hand because there's always so many precedents that I can take in so many different directions. But the, I, the, the precedents that the judge actually does take in the end, in his opinion, preserve this kind of hegemony in America. Yeah. Sorry, so the proponents of CLS would say that that is what is at the essence of law or that is how it's being practiced and how it's being used in society, in American society currently. So I think they're, they're speaking about American society, but I think the observation is about law in general. The observation is that law in general is always overdetermined. There are always way too many directions that I can go with it. And the directions that are gone with it are not expressions of law, but are expressions of politics and expressions of um, capitalism or other, some other kind of, of legal uh, of economic system. Um, yeah. But they don't see it as a, sorry, like proponents of CLS wouldn't see it as a possibility of using law in order to enact other, um, I don't know, like more worthwhile causes, like that would be impossible to use ah. law that way? Or it, sorry, go ahead. Yes, it could be as well. Meaning like it doesn't, it's not essentially negative. It's not that law is always going to be working to, towards capitalist one percenter causes. It will some, it can sometimes and should sometimes be put to work um, for other causes as well. And I think like an, a good example for them would be Brown v. Board of Education, um, being like the desegregation of schools um, is an example where law can actually be put to work doing something that's quite positive and also quite political. Um, this approach is not identical to the approach of my teacher, Revelisha, but there are some pretty uncanny um, similarities. And so what I want you to look at is source number six. Um, I'm sorry, we only have a few minutes left. Um, source number six on page six is, this is a uh, paragraph that I took from a book which is not yet published. Um, so I don't think I can share it with you, uh, except for what you have here, um, which is, this book's thesis is that those halachic arbiters throughout Jewish history who have been widely accepted in their Jewish subcultures both in their lifetimes and after their deaths have been sages as opposed to mere legal scholars or jurists. In other words, regardless of the particular methodologies employed at different stages in the history of Judaic law and of the cultural differences between different locales of Jewish life, the leading authorities have reached their decisions as sages instead of as mere scholars or jurists, meaning, to, just to translate, a judge is not just a judge, a judge is something else. He's not just acting as a judge, um, but he's acting as some other kind of authority. These authorities were neither scholars and jurists of legal data, whose ideology was one of static law, nor activist jurists, whose ideology was one of dynamic law. Rather, they were the people who knew and unpacked all of their scholarly cultural's normative positions on life and who attempted to re reach consequentialistically good decisions by balancing all of the culture's insights integratively instead of simply obeying precedents, overthrowing or manipulating precedents, or even making simplistic value judgments of the appropriate response to a contemporary problem. It's pretty dense. Um, but I think the idea is, and you can tell me if you disagree, is that the particular roads which um, rabbis have taken over, over a period of hundreds of years towards reaching particular decisions is in some ways irrelevant. 
what they are doing is trying to achieve certain ends, um, and the language in which they are speaking is a, is a language of halakha, um, but what they are trying to do is achieve the good of society um, as sages, meaning as, as actors who think about, their, about, about, about what is in general good for society. And I think that the notion of a sage is actually resonates with all, with all of Wendell Holmes, who describes judges as being prophets, meaning like the judge's job is to kind of look into the near future and see what is going to be the best course of action for the near future. And for, I think, Rabbi Elishan Shalevitz as well, there is this sense that the responsibility of a rabbi is to see based on his general knowledge, not just his legal knowledge, what is going to be good for society. Um, I think if we're talking about values-based halacha, this is probably the closest we're going to get to a good definition of that. Um, there is meaning that what we are looking for in halacha is this way in which, which rabbis are acting as sages, trying to do the good for society using legal language. And what we are trying to kind of uncover is we are trying to uncover the rabbis as being those sages um, in reading the sources. Um, next week, and let's get through, through, through a little bit more now. Next week, we're going to get, and get into a few more examples of that. Um, the problem with CLS, and I think just to be like entirely self-critical about this, the problem with a lot of, um, with this approach to halacha, with the values-based approach to halacha, um, is, as Tamara alluded to before, that, well, you know, there is law in life as well. There are lots of critiques. Um, Robert W. Gordon on page number seven, um, I think, has given a series of pretty devastating critiques to this notion of values-based halacha, which are something which we actually have to take into account. Um, what I've given you here um, is, the beginning of Robert W. Gordon is, it, it's not a direct quotation, these are kind of excerpts he gives over a number of pages, um, but his description of what CLS is, which I think is, there's some similarities um, to the second part of the Ravalisha quote, which I didn't read to you. And then the critiques of CLS, which he, which he lays down, um, are important as well, meaning one of the critiques might be that yes, I understand that there are these values that rabbis are trying to express in their legal thought, but what if two rabbis have very different values? What if they have fundamentally different values? Um, let's pick an example. What if, there is a, what, if the, the, what if one of the values is a kind of homophobia? What if that's in the legal system? How do I deal with that? Um, so I think there are kind of limits to the degree which we can read um, halakha using this values-based approach. I think it can be broadly helpful. But I think we also have to be sensitive to ways in which it is not uh, and be open to the possibility that it cannot be. At the same time, like I said before, and I think this is like a serious, it's a real problem, um, you have to do that keeping an eye towards the fact that like, rabbis should be treated rever reverentially. We should always kind of give them the benefit of the doubt that they are grappling with real problems and trying to do the best for everybody. Um, okay. Um, we started five minutes late, so I'm going <laughs> to try to get through this part really quickly. On page number nine, um, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, one of the kind of, I don't know, I think he's like a kind of rock star um, of the uh, legal philosophical world today, and especially uh, among Jews in the legal philosophical world, uh, is Robert Cover, who is a, uh, a law professor at Yale, um, who died um, in his 40s, very young, tragically, uh, short, I think like a year after he wrote this piece. Um, his thought, um, and he, he was Jewish, um, incorporates a lot of halacha into it. It's very interesting to read. He's also a great writer. Um, he incorporates um, legal theory, but also uses examples from Mishnah and Pirkei Avot. It's, it's incredible. Um, and one of his ideas, which I think is helpful and also kind of hopeful um, for us in thinking forwards, is this idea that um, 
law always exists within a certain cultural context. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, class today was scheduled from 6 to 7 p.m. When did class actually start? 6.05. Started last week at 6.05 as well. Meaning like, we as a group, and maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but we as a group have kind of decided that class actually starts at 6.05 p.m. You could imagine, if we're a different group of people, that we might have arrived at a different actual starting time. Um, yeah, yeah, it always reminded me that like, um, in Flatbush, like, there could be like wedding invitations where like, there'd be a time for a wedding, and then there'd be like, if you're a Sephardi, like, if you're a Syrian, like, the actual starting time is this. Meaning like, different communities have different ideas about what, the, what like, a given time to start a wedding means. And some communities might have it earlier, some communities might have it later. Um, Robert Cover would call that kind of understanding within a community of their relationship to the law, to the words on the page, that's a nomos. Nomos is the Greek word for law, or one of the Greek words for law. So a nomos is something that a, a culture kind of determines on the basis of a particular legal system. Um, and it's possible, as he says um, in, um, in the middle paragraph on page nine, that it's possible, it's entirely possible that two, um, two places can have the same legal system, the same words and all the same pages in their law books, but those cultures have very different attitudes towards those laws. And the judges in those societies might make very different legal decisions on the basis of those laws. Um, and you can, just to go back to the, uh, to the example of segregation, you could understand that you know, rules allowing for segregation in schools might have existed on the books in two different places, but in places where that was favored, the judges in those places might have made decisions very differently than the judges in places where it was actually not favored. Um, and so it's always important to keep this in mind. And what his, his idea is that people are always doing this. People are always in the process of kind of developing these relationships, these interactions with the law. And one of the purposes of having a legal system, of having judges, is that judges get a chance to kind of preserve or kind of emphasize certain relationships to law as being more important or more prominent than other ones. And the example he uses is a case um, which, which, he's, which he's talking about in this essay, which is um, there was a university in the, in the United States <clears throat> still is actually called Bob Jones University. Bob Jones University um, did not allow non-whites into the university um, out on religious grounds. Um, they said it was against their religious precepts to do so. Um, and the case was whether they, can, whether they would lose their tax-exempt status as a result of that. Whether that um, or whether um, for the IRS to discriminate against them would be, a, um, would be against their First Amendment rights. And so this case went to the Supreme Court. And Robert Cover, um, in talking about this case, suggested when the judges decide this case, I mean, clearly he thought that Bob Jones University should lose its IRS status. Um, but he says they shouldn't just make the decision on technical grounds. What they should say is, we accept your premise. We accept that you think that this racial segregation, this racial discrimination is part of your religion. And we reject your claim on that ground meaning we reject your nomos. We reject your relationship to law as being valid in the American legal system. We do not think that religious, um, that the establishment clause, that the protection of religious freedoms should allow for racial discrimination. Um, meaning, what he's saying is that we think that law has this really amazing potential power. The law has the power to kind of um, put forward into society what we hope, what we dream for about our relationship to the black letter law. Um, and he, he says here in um, paragraph nine, sorry, in page number nine in the last paragraph, law may be viewed as a system of tension or a bridge 
linking a concept of a reality to an imagined alternative. This is what reality is. Law says, but I want it to be like that. I want it to be better. And I think if we think about, um, say, what it means to make halakha, or to decide halakha about um, homosexuality, about women's status in Judaism, one of the things that we can think about, and I think this is a very hopeful message, is that we are trying to decide law, um, we're trying to decide what we want the Jewish community to look like. We're trying to put forward an image of an ideal Jewish community. Um, and that law um, is a tool through which one can actually be activist and create that kind of change. Um, Robert Cover is a firm believer that law is violent, meaning like law um, actually has changes and makes changes in people's lives, can do harm or damage, can do harm to people, can do good for people. Um, and that's something to keep in mind. Like it's a heavy responsibility that we have when we decide law that it has changes in people's lives. Um, but that when we move forward into society, um, we should kind of imagine law as, as, as kind of being able to project this kind of ideal. Um, what I wanted to do with you in the last few minutes is uh, look at an actual tshuva, actually look at some Jewish halakhic content, <laughs> which I'm sorry we haven't gotten to like for this, for the last 60 minutes. Um, do you have time now like for another 10 minutes or should we stop here? Do you want to just talk Okay, um, I, think, I think let's continue for another 10 minutes just because we're going to move on to something else next time. Um, if you have to leave, that's fine. I totally understand. Um, so on page number 10 and number 11, there's a tshuva of Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav Moshe Feinstein, 20th century um, American uh, rabbi, lived in New York, um, came from Europe, um, and wrote a number of important tshuva, especially about um, what it is like to live in America. And so this tshuva is about, can you invest in companies which violate Shabbat? Can I invest in, well, basically every company violates Shabbat. Um, can I invest in the stock market at all, basically? Which is a pretty important question. So he's trying to find a lot of grounds that I can invest in a company that does that. And he says in the English, on the question of buying shares from companies that do malacha, and the Hebrew for shares is shares, because Ramosha Feinstein loves just transliterating English words. Okay. <laughs> on the question of buying shares from companies that do malacha and business on Shabbat, we see it fitting to be permissive. The reason is simple. The shareholder is not relevant since he is simply a part of the business, since the shares have no say in the business, with the exception of the owner's portion. There is not enough for there to be a partnership in the little that he has. As well, the shareholder does not wish to be the business owner, nor does he wish to purchase anything from the business. Meaning, like if I have shares in McDonald's, I don't want to buy a hamburger. Rather, it is as though he is purchasing whatever profits or losses there are from the business according to the given amount that he has purchased. I'm just buying money, basically, or a loss. Moreover, it appears that, strictly speaking, this is not a purchase, a kinyan, in the halakhic definition, since he is purchasing something non-existent. It is only a purchase according to the local laws. Right, so he's like kind of inserted this sense like, well, we're not really buying anything technically anyway, so it should be okay. As for the fact that according to the conditions of purchase, the shareholder can vote for the president, this vote has no halakhic legal significance, since in reality, the corporation leave for themselves the majority of shares. So in any opinion, I guess, that, I mean, I don't know, maybe this was true back in the day that uh, there's already, a, there's always a 51% stake by the corporation, I have no idea. So in any opinion, the shareholders expressed as irrelevant. 
The shareholders, too, do not even want to express an opinion about this, since their intention is not to buy this company. As a result, my humble opinion is that one need not worry about what the owners do, since this does not concern the shareholders. And even if there are Jews among the owners, they need not be considered accessories to sin, since they will conduct business regardless of whether the Jewish owner purchases shares from the company, since there is no absence of buyers, and thus all shares will be held, and since the buyer, buyer buys only for his own personal benefit and not to partner with the Jewish owner. As a result, there is no prohibition, just as it is the practice of many people and even those who fear sin to purchase shares. However, there is reason to forbid the purchase of a quantity sufficiently large that the owners will consider his opinion. Okay. So like, this is a kind of a foray, foray into what it means to be reading through a values-based system. There are several different ways of reading this text. Um, we can imagine a kind of more positivist reading of this text would be to say that he is simply engaging with the halakhic material that is available to him. He's kind of like put two and two together, like these are the halakhot, this is what it means to buy a share, therefore it's okay to buy shares. I think in this room we would we probably agree that Ramosha Feinstein is thinking about this very seriously in terms of, like, of what it would actually mean for um, Jews not to be able to purchase shares, to not be able to invest in the stock market. Um, and then that is a concern of his. I think, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think we intuitively feel that Rav Moshe Feinstein is kind of worried about that possibility and wants Jews to be able to be successful in America. Um, at the same time, and I think this is like, in terms of thinking about this in terms of values-based halacha, that has to be weighed off against the uh, observance of Shabbat. And that he's grappling with what is this new institution, this notion of a stockholder, what does it have to do with the notion of engaging in business and with the violation of Shabbat? Because violation of Shabbat, again, is like clearly a very serious problem. And he tries to solve this through a number of different means. He actually he presents a number of solutions. One is, well, you know, the shareholder doesn't really have any rights. He could vote for the president, but like, ah, that doesn't really matter. Um, it's not really a kinyan on a technical ground. So he's providing all these different answers to it. And we can read those answers as being um, simply the, the kind of, you know, deductively, those are the answers which any rabbi would have given. Or that he is responding to these, these values that he sees, and he's kind of writing this law um, with those values in mind. And what we should be doing when we, read, when we read this text is to kind of read backwards and to kind of uncover the values that he has stashed away. Meaning, one of the things that you could read into saying that the shareholder has very little say is to say, well, this isn't really a partnership because when I like when my when, when my mutual fund goes and purchases shares in a company that um, violates the Shabbat, I have like no relationship to that company whatsoever. Um, that is not really a violation for me. And what he's and what he's really defining is this this, this the, the fact that this shareholder relationship is not really a um, is not really a partnership relationship. A way you might challenge that, and I think this is important to think about in terms of. What Rav Moshe Feinstein is saying and is not saying is, well, what if I have a mutual fund? And one of the companies in the mutual fund actually um, exploits workers in the United States or in China. What happens if it engages in behavior that I find morally reprehensible? According to Rav Moshe Feinstein, if you read this kind of like black letter of Moshe Feinstein, this would simply be saying, well, that's okay. Because the shareholder has no say in the company as well. He's simply trying to get money, and so the, the work of the company is irrelevant. I would, I would think that Rav Moshe Feinstein would not be okay with that. I mean, I, I think he's not speaking to that possibility. He's speaking to different values. He's not thinking about the value of um, 
ethical labor practices, ethical company behaviors. Um, and that he might suggest something different, a different answer, if he was thinking about that. And I think this is helpful, this is important for us to think about as well, meaning like, can we say on the one hand that I have no say in a company as a shareholder for purposes of Shabbat, but not for the purposes of ethical misconduct? Can I say that it's okay for me to, to buy a share of a company on Shabbat, um, the, a company that works on Shabbat, and also exploits its workers? Um, these seem to come into conflict. And in thinking about how we might today write a response about this, um, we have to kind of go into the sources that Rav Moshe Feinstein is using, but also other values that might, that might come up as well. Um, there's so much more to say. I think we'll stop there. I think that's good. Thank you for staying a little bit over time.